Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this is Brad Listy. I just wanted to issue a quick reminder before we get started about Other People Premium. Other People Premium is a subscription service. It's how you get access to all the episodes of this podcast, more than 400 and counting, available at your fingertips anywhere you go. It's a subscription service. Did I mention that? It's a great way to support this program. And uh, best of all, it costs only 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything, including conversations I've had with authors like Cheryl Strayed, David Shields, Jonathan Lethem, Edwidge Dantica, Roxane Gay, Amy Bender, Sheila Hetty. The list goes on. Other People Premium. The best way to do it, the easiest way to get Other People Premium is to just get the Other People with Brad Listy app. The app is free. You get the app on your device. You can sign up for premium right there within the app for $0.75 cents a month. Other People Premium. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Hello? You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person and just one person. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is partially focused. This is operatically lethargic. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California, if you can believe that. It's very nice to be with you. My guests today on the program, there are more than one. I have multiple guests. Uh, They are Robert Vaughn and Kathy Fish, co-authors of a book called Rift, available now from Unknown Press. Rift is a collection of flash fiction, otherwise known as incredibly short fiction. Very short, short stories. Do you understand what I'm saying? Rift was a TNB book club pick back in December 2015, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. And, uh, you know, in what is a little bit unusual, I am only now getting around to having these guys on the program because we decided to wait until they were out here in person, which they were uh, a few weeks ago for uh, AWP when it was in Los Angeles. So Robert Vaughn and Kathy Fish in conversation momentarily. So before we get started, I do have some mail. A listener named Derek wrote to me. uh, He says, Hi, Brad. In your interview with Elizabeth Crane, episode 410, you discussed early publications that may prove embarrassing later. This made me start thinking about works published by young authors. Do you ever have trouble reconciling the authority of an author 
with their age when they are significantly younger than you. Personally, when I'm introduced to a younger author, I find myself curmudgeonly thinking, what can this person X amount of years younger than I am have to say that will resonate with me? Signed, Derek. Actually, I think I have the opposite of that. If I read something by someone who's younger than I am, I always tend to think they're talking over my head or they know things that I don't know, that I'm getting slower, that I've lost a step, that I'm getting soft or too cynical. I trust youth. I should probably have, I think I need to balance it a little bit more. I think I should have maybe a a bit more respect for the wisdom of old age or the wisdom that hopefully comes with old age, the wisdom that we get uh, from a crude experience. But I don't look down my nose at the young at all. It's not something that, that's not something that bothers me. I actually like hanging out with young people. Like, not in a uh, weird way. I just like, know, I like knowing what's going on. And I think that's, I've talked about this before. I think it's also a function of being a dad. I don't want to be out of touch with the generations that come behind me. I want to have a clue. I think there's something that happens to us uh, that isn't positive when we start to close our minds to the voices uh, of the people who are younger than we are. Like, we know it all. I don't know. So that's my feeling on it. But I think I overcorrect. I don't want young people to look at me and be like, uh, though they probably do that anyway. I had a very, uh, I had a very, uh, striking moment when I was teaching college. I was in my earlier, you know, in my early thirties, like 33. And like all the time that I was teaching, I felt like I was close in age to these people. It was almost like a peer-to-peer thing in my head. But then one day I was standing there and it dawned on me that I was uh, almost twice their age. (laughs) I could technically be their father. I can't remember what it was. I think I was just standing there and it just occurred to me. Like, they don't think I'm one of them. Nor should they. But you hang on. You know, when you're 33, you don't feel that far removed from being 18. You really don't. Or at least I didn't. I still don't. I don't know. It's not something I think about. I don't get worked up about young writers coming up behind me. I don't, I'm not worried about it. I don't have as much to protect, maybe, as some. I don't know. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty 
And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guests today, guests, why is that such a hard thing to say? Uh, My guests are Robert Vaughn and Kathy Fish. Their collection of flash fiction is called Rift, out there now from Unknown Press, the official December 2015 pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Ladies and gentlemen, here they are. This is Robert Vaughn and Kathy Fish. Because Bud Smith was not able to be here. I know. Bud Bud he made a real estate purchase. He did. Yeah, Yeah, the nerve of him. I know. Unbelievable. (laughs) What are you doing, Bud? Becoming a homeowner. Good for him, though. Good for him. Oh, yeah. We miss him. Right. Um, So flash fiction. That's your game. Yes. Okay. So that's like, but that's a a niche within a niche. Mm. It is. And it's like, is it something that you, um, you know, loved to read and then said, I want to do that? Or was, you know, was it one of those things where you were sitting down to maybe write longer form fiction and just realize like, this is my mode? For me, it was the fact that I have four children. Uh-huh. And uh, when I was starting to write, I had uh, two school-age children and a baby and a toddler. Uh-huh. And What is it? Necessity uh, is the mother of invention. Exactly. Yes. I had every intention of writing long stories, maybe even a novel, but it didn't work out that way. I was writing. I wanted to finish things, so I would write these little stories you know, while the children are napping or while I'm waiting for the practice to get over or whatever. Yeah. I didn't know that it was flash fiction. Uh, and then I joined a, a group called, um, online group called Zotrope. Yeah, sure. And um, at one point, they, they just opened up a wing that was called Flash Fiction. And it was for stories under a thousand words. And I realized that everything I was writing was under a thousand words. So I thought, oh, okay, I'm a flash fiction writer, I guess. <laughs> Thank you for telling me what I am. Yeah. It's yeah, always nice, you exactly. know, when someone does that. And then what about you, Robert? Uh, for me, I, I think it came organically like that too, but in my case, I've always kept a journal, and I've written in the journal since I was um, in my teen years, and because of the entries um, and the length that they are usually, they're not typically like do three pages a day or whatever, I felt that the abbreviated version of writing was a natural thing for me. What do you write in your journal? You just record what happened in the day? It's changed over time. I used to do a lot more of that, but I think now I use it more experimentally. I'll do sensory things happening around me. If I do public writing, I'll pick a character in the cafe that they don't know I'm writing about and just go with a story about it. Yeah. Um, but but I used to really feel like I liked that feeling of writing for uh, like 30 minutes or 45 minutes and letting things whoosh out of me in a first draft. And then I started to realize through the online scene that there was a lot of people writing shorter fiction. And I think Which, I just, by the way... Uh, works well online it does yeah for the for the you know scope of how long you really want to sit in front of a computer and everything 
And then meeting people like Kathy or Randall Brown or different Kim Chinkui, you know, these people that were really getting a lot of uh, press about it made me feel like I wanted to pursue it and kind of perfect it. Yeah. Well, and yeah, like I think part of the digital age maybe makes flash fiction uh, easier for people to find uh, and maybe has grown the audience for it. Do you feel like the readership for flash fiction is is there and is is maybe expanding? I'm hope I hope that's the case. Um, I know that like in the real world that I belong to, most people don't know what flash fiction is. Um, And so I hope that it's gaining ground. I really do. Uh, I think it's certainly less, it's like, among it's like, writers. It's like, it's like, hey, it's less painful reading. Look, it's, it's <laughs> over quickly. It's over quickly. Yeah, it's over quickly. <laughs> if you don't like it, you're coming to the end. Yeah, there's right. A, there's a little pushback to the idea that um, Flash is proliferating uh, simply because we all have such short attention spans. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't like that idea, and then a lot of people disagree with that idea. And I honestly disagree with it, too. I don't think it is short attention spans. It's just that we... You know, uh, we, we 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 don't have short attention spans. We just merely like smaller things now. Yeah, and you're just, working in miniature. That's a little it. miniature, yeah, just like art, uh, minimalism, anything like that. It's just sort of a uh, a different art form. Sure. sure. I, I feel, too, also that um, in some ways, because the rules are not the same for short story and a short fiction piece, you know, or, or flash fiction, I feel there's more... Um, permissiveness to kind of get experimental with flash fiction. You know, there's sort of a construct of what we expect out of a short story that doesn't necessarily have to apply to flash fiction. So for me, because I like sometimes to have a brush up to things like prose poetry, which is not analogous. Is that the right word? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I like to work in that realm of not knowing. And for some readers, they don't like that. They don't like... You mean the, the stories being more elliptical and less uh, yeah. like less of a concrete ending? Right. Like, a... I don't really get this. I hear a lot of times from my shorter work, and it's like, okay, well, what did you get out of it? You know, I'll ask the readers or whatever. And I think that's something that I really relish about the form, is that I get to, like, play more. I get to, like, experiment more. And it frees me up on the page, you know? Yeah. Well, and it, but, you know, to, to write in short form, uh, to write in poetry, and to have the work resonate and feel like... Uh, it has some gravity. Mm-hmm. You know that kind of writing is difficult. It may, it you, know, you know, you may be able to go from A to Z more quickly because it's a smaller word mm-hmm. count. But to make it good, that's a lot of polishing mm-hmm. and a lot of compressing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, right? Oh, absolutely. I think it informs. Like I think that uh, it, even if you are a longer form writer, it informs your writing and it improves your writing to practice uh, the concision that you see in flash fiction. At least give it a try. Yeah. Um, and it will teach you how much fluff there is in writing. I think concision, I think concision is a good thing for anybody to learn, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. anybody who communicates in any mm-hmm. way. I say mm-hmm. this as somebody who rambles in his monologues <laughs> every week. But... No, not rambling, no. <laughs> but the other thing, too, is like I, one of the things that I – loved is when I first started to want to do submissions more, you know, like say eight or 10 years ago, there were sites that like, um, for instance, short, fast and deadly Joseph Quintella, it had to be 140, not words. What is a tweet? What is it called? Like 140 characters, characters or less. How do you write something in that amount? You know, or there's like 50 word stories on places Mm -hmm. to submit to, or there's this. So I liked those parameters, the box, if you will. Yeah. Because how do you do, you know, I would say to myself, take the challenge. How do you figure this out? You know, and then I'd give it a go. It's like a little workout for your mind. Exactly. You know, you strengthen those muscles. And Mm -hmm. I think some people, 
um, very good writers re- would really struggle, mm-hmm. you know, to confine. Like mm-hmm. there are people, some people, I guess, are just more lyrical. They need more space. Well, it's funny because um, for some reason I, I used to read a lot of Stephen King when I was younger. And he's got the book out now that's um, 11, 22. 22 I've been watching that on Hulu. Okay. I haven't watched it, but I wanted to read the book. And it's this 800 it's huge. It's, yeah. it's, I couldn't bring it with me to AWP. Because, it's too heavy. Right. I need another suitcase. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was interesting to read him now, later on, after a person who has written so much flash fiction. And I'm just, uh, you know, the red pen in my mind is just going, oh, take that out. Take that out. Take out. Why are you saying that? Why are you doing that? It does not have to be an 895-page story or whatever it is. Well, but, you know, like that's the thing. He might work he, – he might like to work in a more um, expansive exactly. uh, prose style. But the other thing, too, and I have no idea if this is the case, but I, I instinctively feel like someone of his stature who sold as many books as he has and who – you know, he's got a very secure station in the world right. of publishing. Yes. Does anybody edit him? No, I would I would say at this point not. I, if I were him, I would be like begging some. I, I would need somebody to push back. But maybe yeah. maybe he has, like maybe his wife does that or he has a friend who does it. And, yeah. and, and I don't have anything against long books. I've, I've read plenty of like the Russian, you know, epic novels. But I don't didn't have the same feeling about them, reading them, as I did the Stephen King. I was like, oh my gosh, you do not need... But I still, I still very much uh, admire him as a writer. I think he's, you know, and I'm, I'm in it. I'm in the book. I'm, you know, I'm watching this thing on Hulu. I'm watching it, and if I'm honest, uh, I, I have a hard time following some of the acting. Uh, I'm just like, oh god, like there's a lot of it that I don't like, but I'm following it. Yeah. And and what I'm admiring is like, okay, this is an this is an absurd conceit. Right. The time traveler goes back to save JFK, right. but I want to fucking know what happens. Exactly. <laughs> and I have it's not driving thrown me. the book across <laughs> no, the room. I'm still every night. I'm cracking it and, open. I and know, I... and and then I'm getting scared. Like there are moments where I'm like, oh shit, what's going to happen? And so I'm like, he <laughs> yeah. kind of, you know, yeah. he, he has knows. That, he has that suspense. He really does. He builds like it pulls that, you know, that bow way back. You know, and you're like, what's going to happen? Well, and just and just plotting. Like there's a couple of things. Like just that the the ability to plot. And to yeah. build stories mm-hmm. that keep people hooked. Exactly. Um, that's a real gift. And it then, and, and then, just the the sheer output. Like uh, what I, is, yeah. is what is going on I inside of this man? I have heard that he writes every day. Yeah. And it's Christmas, and he writes, and it's you know his. But it's like it's like it's like ten or fifteen pages in a shot. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I am. I'm lucky if I get a page in five hours. I'm so slow. Five hundred words is my like. Uh, that's a big great. Goal. That's a great day for me. <laughs> that's a great day. And yeah. I, you know, I look at some of these young guns too, like a Michael Seidlinger or some of these other folks that are like not only doing a press, but they crank out a book a year or whatever. How do they do it? Yeah. What kind of life? Bud Smith is a great example. Our publisher, yeah, just writing know? on his phone at like lunch break, and yeah. there he is. Yeah. And he is so he loves writing so much that he just does it. You know, yeah. it's like. See, I, I don't have that love. Like, I wish I had the Bud Smith, like, pure love. Don't we all? He's got, like, just, like, the puppy love and, like, he does. the greatest attitude. Oh, my and... gosh. I hope it never changes. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. It's and so I, refreshing. I, it is. And, yeah. I like, when I had him in uh, in the garage here talking to him, it was like, you know, a breath of fresh air. Yeah. And it was also sort of like I felt a little ashamed of myself. I was like, damn, I got to get my attitude up. I got I to gotta rethink this. But, you know, everyone has their own approach. And, like, I, I do enjoy it. I especially enjoy it when I get a paragraph right or it at least just feels it, right. it feels right yeah. all that work is satisfying yeah. but mm-hmm. for me it's a slow process have mm-hmm. you though like me every once in a while 
there's that piece that just flows and it just you write it from start to finish and it's yeah. pretty dang good well, and it doesn't need much work and it's a but it's a weird process too because you can be struggling 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 for two three weeks and then suddenly you'll hit a phase where things are coming more easily and all of a sudden you look up and it's like oh i just wrote like eleven thousand words in right. a month right. or and, something like that but you have to do you have to go through that yeah. you can't mm-hmm. just sit and wait till oh i'm when i feel the urge i'll sit down no. and write you no can't do I, that. I was having a conversation with somebody uh i forget i forget even who it was but it was on this show and uh, the way that they couched it was just like making yourself available to the work mm-hmm. and to the, That's the gods, whatever it, it is. Like if you don't sit down and make yourself available, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I think that too. And I, I think the more writers you can surround yourself with, where you, because if there are weeks or days or whatever where you just feel like, what am I doing? For me, I'll, a lot of times on the heels of putting a book out. I just feel like there's so much promotion crap and there's so much stuff you have to talk about to get caught, reviewed and da 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 da. It doesn't. I'm just now. Rift came out December first. Right. I'm just now this week getting back into writing. I mean, I'm just feeling it emerging. Yeah, but you gotta. I think you have to. In the wake of a book's release, you have to allow yourself time for that period. Yeah. The, the promotional period, the fallow period, mm-hmm. the non-generative, yes. yep. mm-hmm. non-creative period. Because yep. you know that's a part of it. Mm-hmm. If you're going to publish and try to find a readership, you right. have to do that stuff. Right. And and. You know, there's also something sort of um, celebratory about it, going mm-hmm. out and doing readings and doing events and right. meeting people who have read the book and right, right. doing podcasts. I mean, doing podcasts it's a fucking party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Light up! It is, yeah, it is really uh, something. I, I think it's celebratory, but I also think, um, well, in our case, because it was a mutual co-authored book, I felt lost too. I felt like we were, I was grieving because we built a really strong connection. Yeah, what was that like, co-authoring a book? Fun. It was super fun. Um, we weren't like we weren't involved with each other's writing until we got the stories done. Uh-huh. And we we gave some feedback as we wrote, mm-hmm. but not too much. You were editing each other as you went. A little bit, just feedback. Mm-hmm. And then when we had decided which stories were going to go into the book, then we had these long uh, phone calls. And you know, Robert in Wisconsin had my pile of stories. And me in Colorado, I had his pilot stories, and we'd already had a look at them, made notes, and we just went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Like editorially or like in terms of sequencing or both? We didn't do sequencing until pretty close to, you know, getting the book together. Because I can imagine in a, in a collection of Flash where there's uh, a greater volume, greater number of pieces, yeah. it almost seems like sequencing would be doubly important. Yes. yes, it felt that way. Two stories. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you can't just throw them into the book. No. Um, we had to make it work on some sense. So we did do the we did the, the four sections. Right, we did subsectioned. Um, and uh, kind of looking at, uh, I think it was mostly sort of intensity, don't you think? Emotional mm-hmm. intensity mm-hmm. of the stories. So they gathered as they went um, with the most intense stories being at the end. And and like within each section too, like we start. I think even like fault, then tremor, tremor, then breach, breach and cataclysm, and then cata- cataclysm. Yeah. So we wanted we had this idea because Rift came very very early. Actually, this whole process came about because of Bud. You know, once um, we had an online writing group, there was four of us. And one person had to leave to work on a novel. And so I suggested Kathy. I knew Kathy. Like an apostasy. Those novel writers. (laughs) (laughs) And and so Bud was the person very, very soon after that, about February, right on this time last year, February, March, he said, 
to me first, hey, what do you think about a, a mutual author book? I, I said, of course, it matters who. You know, are you talking you and I? And he said, what about you and Kathy Fish? My gut reaction right away, right off the bat, was she's not going to want to do that. And, and I, I was thrilled by the idea. I was very honored that they asked me. But I, ha- I said to Bud, honestly, Bud, I have no new material. I didn't. I've been uh, blocked for two or three years. Um, I'd put out a couple books pre- previously, collections of Flash, but I had nothing new. And were you sitting idea- down to, to write and just like staring at a flashing cursor or were you not even doing it? I wasn't even doing it. I, I didn't even feel like a writer anymore. There was a long period of time where I thought, who was this woman who wrote all those stories? It didn't even feel like the same person. And you had said also, I've heard you refer to the fact that you had, you were really on the fence, like whether you wanted to go on with writing or whether you're going to look for other opportunities of things to do or, you know, you were in that place. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to stay into the game by interviewing other writers. and um, Is that what I've been doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's all you've been Brad. doing. You're uh, in the game. Tell me well, who you I also am. own the Nervous Breakdown, so that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, yeah, you know, a, that's a good game. But, but I just wanted to, I wanted to stay in touch, and I wanted to stay part of the game. So I, you know, I had a blog, and I reviewed books, and I you know, was on Twitter, and I was just trying to stay with so, so you, weren't, you weren't totally in the wilderness. No, I wasn't. I wasn't totally in the wilderness. Um, but I wasn't writing regularly. Yeah. And uh, then I joined their, uh, what they called the Night Owl Cafe. And once a week, we took turns coming up with some sort of write a story, you know, about clowns or put the Three Stooges in a story. And we did. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I just I just faithfully showed up every week and, and threw something up there. Did you learn anything from that process? Because there's a part of me that says, you know what, some writers, some artists, they just need those long fallow periods. They need time away. They need to regenerate. And then there's another part of me that's like, that's bullshit. you got to keep sitting down. You can't let yourself fall into that. Right. I believe both of those I things. do too. <laughs> and I don't know how to reconcile it. I, I need I somebody. Think, I think they both they coexist. I really do. I think, I think life is busy. Mm. And life has these things that come at us and we're like, what the hell am I going to do with this? You know. And, and sometimes you have to just step away. And sometimes I think stepping away brings you back into the game in a different way where you feel like I've got some new ammunition, you know? And you got to live, you know, especially yeah. if you're a writer who works, you know, I guess really explicitly from the inside out, like you need material. Yeah. You do. You need to have done some living. And if you've right. used it all up on past books, then that can be part of the, part of the reason why the, the stories aren't coming. Right. right. I had a massive amount of stories that I had written. Also, I kind of went through some health issues too. I was having chronic pain and that'll do just it though. Odd like you know, back just, stuff or no, just joints oh. like um, my arms and legs, and and I had just horrible times with with chronic pain that somehow I just seemed to come out of um, by taking lots of vitamins and eating well and doing yoga and things like that. So I think I think it was hard for me to create under those conditions. If you're in if you're in pain, like I've had back issues, like you're not doing any writing. Same with me. Yeah, I had I, I had a slip disc in 2010. Uh-huh. Right, and I couldn't I couldn't sit. I had to write standing up for like four and a half months. And fortunately, I did not have surgery. But I yeah, there's an anatomical thing about writing where you put your butt down, get it on the page, you know. And it's just it's impossible sometimes to it's feel not, like you want to. The, the writing is not good for your physical health. No, Let's no, be it's not. Although I did see. And I don't know if I read the entire article or if I just read the headline because that's kind of a problem with me. But it was something to do with the fact that that's a little bit of bullshit 
what the, the thing sitting? about the sitting. Yeah, well, being, the, I, all I, sitting's like cancer. It's like worse than smoking four packs of cigarettes right. a day, and it's that's like, now they're starting to, of course, come the other way and say, nah, maybe not. It's no, not there's one. these good things about it. All for those you. people who bought like a three thousand <laughs> yeah. dollar. You should Stop. be a writer, like yeah. the whole world is. Stop running, <laughs> sit down. Um, so yeah, so I mean, it's like I. There are people who have those like standing like treadmill desks. My husband has one of those. Is he into yeah. it? Does he? Well, no. He mostly sits down. Is he a writer? Yeah. No, he's not. Okay. It's, I think it's like, I like the idea of somebody like putting a stool on top of their inert treadmill and like just sitting on that. <laughs> I love that idea too. And I also love the idea of like being married to a writer. Can you imagine? I don't know anybody who, I couldn't make that work, I don't think. To I, be in a competitive it's not realm? Even, it's not even that. It's just like circular firing squad like the same conversations i feel oh, like you know yes, yes exactly it's i don't like, need yeah, I there's i got i've got enough of me you know yeah, yeah. and i'm doing this show every day <laughs> every damn if day I, if i had to walk back and if i had to walk back inside and be like uh you know uh, honey let's talk about i would just oh, uh, yeah, that would be yeah. the end of me yeah, i wouldn't absolutely. be able to do it so uh, yeah. But some people, there are couples you know yeah there, there's quite a few actually the, the full immersion experience yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. So you guys do this co-authoring. Uh, Bud is your publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, he's your editor. It's like the you know it's the whole kit a little caboodle. bit of it. Yeah, he did, he did a little bit of everything. I think on the book. He came up with the concept too, which I don't don't I don't think this book would have happened without Bud. No. I don't think we would have said, "Hey, let's do a book." I did approach Bud because I've workshopped with him for two different goes years. You know, uh, through the Night Owl Cafe, I've thought best of. I've proposed to him, like, let's pick the best of the, and then there's six of us involved or whatever. Mm-hmm. Never, ever thought of a co-authored book. And all of a sudden, they're cropping up. Every, you see lots yeah. of them. So did you guys have stories, like, you had stories that you were using the same writing prompts for, so there would be resonances automatically, yes, like built-in resonances. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't helped. It wasn't like you were just working independently, and then you looked no. at what you had and tried to fit them together. No, right. and so it did kind of organically, I mean, even though we were going from prompts, um, it just seemed like there were stories that naturally... Um, Paired together, mm-hmm. even if they weren't from the same prompt, yes, they might have had some something. And, and Robert was really good about that. He, you kind of in it, intuitively saw those pairings. I tend to. Kathy is really, really a great editor for um, content, line read, all that stuff. Like she down to the T. You know, like that apostrophe is not the right place. <laughs> I'm more like a big picture sort of editor. You know, like, oh, you have a turkey in your story? I had one back three months ago in mine. You know, I, I look at kind of how things evolve or how the larger picture, larger scope is of stories more often. So a good little symbiosis. And um, mm-hmm. like, were there any, you said, you mentioned intuition. And uh, I'm curious to know if like, were there any weird like things where you both had like a turkey that said the same thing or, you know yeah, what I'm well, saying? The, the akimbo was the one mm-hmm. thing that we noticed mm-hmm. that. Yeah, we came to, we decided what our last stories were sort of in the last stages of the project and both of them had akimbo in the last Word. sentence and we didn't even know it, it when yeah, we workshopped we them we, we had no idea that we had done that Whoa. Okay. yeah so yeah certain ironies that happen like that yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised like i feel yeah. like if you're working on a book together and it's you know it's a deep thought project uh-huh. and you're working from the same prompts mm-hmm. and it's a weekly thing and you're talking to each other regularly there's going to be it some weird... It just kind of pulls out. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's mm-hmm. like a mind meld. Yeah. yeah it, 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 is. Really it, it is. It really was. It really was. Um, okay. So I want to find out about you guys. Um, we talked a little bit before we came on. You're from originally Rochester, right? I'm originally from Rochester, New York, upstate. Okay. Um, 
my mom grew up in the Finger Lakes on Canisius Lake, and my dad grew up right on Lake Ontario. So really into the water, did a lot of summers on lakes. and That's a um, nice way to grow up. It was, I, I, and I still feel that way now. Like I want to get to the ocean while, while we're in Los Angeles. You know, it's just I don't want to sit at LACC all week. Bathed you know? in some petroleum. and. But I also feel like uh, it, my dad had a heart attack when I was pretty young. He was like 38, oh. and it was severe. Oh. You know, And at that time, because it was the 70s. Was he, was he a smoker or something? What? He was a smoker, and he was overweight. Okay. And he worked a really – he was a doctor. He worked at heavy hours. You know, Smoking doctor? Right. Okay. You can figure that out. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so we, um, we had a big scare, and I think my mom more than us – like, how would I deal with this if he's not there? Uh -huh. I didn't think that way as a seven-year-old or a six-year-old, you know. But um, he started to work four days a week as a result, and he started to look for property in the, in the country. And we moved – we were in the suburbs in, the, in Rochester. We moved to Macedon, New York, which is like way – 30 minutes outside of the city. So he commuted. He kept his office. But um, – I was so grateful to get out of that space, you know, the suburbanite 70s culture. My parents were also very much into the cocktail set, like the Cheever scene, you know, oh, like yeah, yeah, yeah. they were into the martinis and Key getting parties. together with people. Yeah. And I think that changed. My dad got into farming as a second interest. And my mom had the biggest difficulty transitioning to being out in rural stuff. She loved, she uh, was part of the Rochester Philharmonic. She loved the culture of Rochester. She loved being connected to those women that were involved in that. Yeah. She had a really tough time being with the rural wives, you know? And yeah, well, that's a different set. It was a very, very different transition. But I loved, I love still living out in the country, having property. I live, we have five acres where I live and uh. Where do you live in? I live in River Hills, which is north of the of Milwaukee. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's in the woods, and it's just off. I mean, the highway is really close. I can get downtown in twelve minutes, which is unheard of for a big city. But we have property. You know, you when go the cross country are on skiing the, and stuff like that. I go cross country skiing on the frozen creeks. I go on the creek, but I also go over to like Brown Deer Park. Yeah, and, you know, places I grew there. up doing that. Did you? Yeah. Oh, that's I cool. I, I knew I, f I would have a connection with you about Milwaukee. Well, for sure. yeah. That's like I have a very idealized memory of m that part of my childhood because it was the early part. Sure. When things were still magical. <laughs> yeah. And it was a beautiful city. I mean, it still is a cool city in many ways. And I think it's come a long way from people oh, that lived there like in the 80s and 90s. I haven't been back in a, I haven't been back in a long time. It's like yeah. over 20 years. Well, I come say. visit. You're always welcome to stay at our place. I, I think I might be going to Green Bay in uh, September. Awesome. For the, Come by, man. For like a, seriously. a football game. Cool. Because my parents, you know, I have this big Southern family. My parents are actually from Louisiana. Right. LSU is playing Wisconsin at Lambeau Field. Oh, you got to go. There's a big contingency of my crazy, <laughs> That's a big deal. Of my like crazy Cajun relatives. So I'm getting, uh, you know, dragged into this. Are it's you still fun. a Packers fan? I am, but I'm increasingly conflicted about football and the head injuries. And oh, yeah. I, I, I feel I have the to, same I way. have to issue that caveat because, like, I grew up watching it. Sure. I'm, I was, you know, a daily reader of the Milwaukee sports page yeah. my whole life. Right. Um, or at least the, my whole online life. Sure. And now I find myself just feeling sort of gross about it. Yeah, I can understand that. You know, so, and you are from, Kathy? I am from Waterloo, Iowa. What, is, what happens in Waterloo? Not much. <laughs> Not much. Um, what's significant about Waterloo, Iowa? Is it, one of these towns, is it one of these towns that's gone uh, like to pot like, uh, with like a meth problem or like is it that yeah. kind of thing? Yeah, I, I'm not sure so much about Waterloo, but some of the little towns surrounding are very Meth well, I, and I think the reason I even bring it up is that I read a book called Methland. I think that's the title, and yeah, it was a case sad. study, and it was set in Iowa. Like oh. it was, it was a one small. I think it was one small town in Iowa yeah, that it used as just Evansville, like a sample. Janesville, mm. something like that. Well, yeah. just I think you know, it was one of these things where it was a town that had a very 
um, strong industrial base of employment. Yes, yes. John and, Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. It was like a company town. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then that company out, you know, ships its jobs overseas. Yeah. Suddenly you have all these people who are out of work, and they have to take jobs that are not unionized, yeah. that pay them half of their previous wage, yeah. which means they often have to take two jobs, oh, man. which means they're fucking tired. Yeah. And then all of a sudden someone gives them a bump of meth, and it's like, boom. Like that's yeah, that's that's what happened. I mean, when I was growing up, I'm a, from a working class family. My dad worked at John Deere. Uh, my older brothers worked at John Deere. They also had like a RAS packing company, and they had you know a what? Uh, well, there was a company called RAS that made oh. uh, bacon and sausage and things like that. Okay. So um, good smelling town. I was going to say on certain days. That's, a, <laughs> um, that's an aesthetically pleasant place to work. When yeah. they had the yeah right, and so well, at least my my dad and brothers worked at John Deere, which was a little less icky but um yeah so there's not a killing floor thriving. at john deere <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're not they're not feeding uh, not live yet. animals into the blades of lawnmowers <laughs> and, and you know when when wrath would have a kill because we were not that when i was growing up we didn't live that far from the wrath packing and certain summer days you uh, know it was uh, real humid you know where else that's a, it's that uh smell. it's like that and in Greeley. packing district in, in new york is like that well yeah and, and uh, in Greeley, colorado i don't know if you've ever been within no i've uh, never been to Greeley. smelling distance but that's north of where you are <laughs> it's it's known for it it's yeah. known for it there's a yeah. huge cattle operation in Greeley yeah. that just sort of ruins the whole thing ruins yeah. the whole vibe as far right. as i'm concerned well, and the town i mean the town was thriving because of deer and and wrath when i was young yeah. and exactly as you described um you know in the farm crisis and all that uh, just kind of took it down and lots of mass layoffs and it's, it's tragic sort of, mm-hmm. it seems to be bouncing back a little bit now and there's a large immigrant population uh in waterloo from where all uh, over Bosnia or? and places like that. Mm, okay. Yeah, interesting. Really revitalizing the the town and the culture. And everything. With what? Like, what do they bring? Uh, like, you know, small businesses or they? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not completely sure, but I think they they do do their own small businesses, um, uh, work their heads off, and just um, bringing up families and just but sustaining their culture within. Uh, the U.S. Yeah. I mean, they still do their festivals. And it's the lifeblood. See the immigration debate. We need, we need, oh. uh, you know, new energy. Bring them in, people. <laughs> yeah, especially what? in these towns that are ravaged. A lot of people have moved away. Like you need, uh-huh. you need some people to come in who have energy and want to make it new. Mm-hmm. Exactly. One thing that um, I was always intrigued by: Kathy is the sole daughter with seven brothers. Seven brothers. Okay, right, so she was the only girl brought up with seven brothers, and I'm a sole boy with three sisters. Wow. Right, so I always felt like, and it isn't so much necessarily like in our stories that this comes forth, but I always felt like that was something that was energetically interesting to connect about. You know, you're like the like? you're like the inverse of Adam Sandler's character in Punch Drunk Love. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah, exactly. Uh, what was that line? Remember when we used to call you gay boy, and you'd be so mad. <laughs> <Yes>! <laughs> That's it. Uh, it's such a funny scene, you know, like, yeah. like, like an interesting and an interesting uh, setup, you know. So what was it like? And like, where were you? Okay. Uh, chronologically, in yep. terms of age okay, order. Okay, so eight kids, and I was the seventh. Okay. So I had six older brothers and one younger brother. Wow. And they were um, athletes, all of them. Um, and it, my household—I don't know how my mother kept her sanity. They would. They were wrestlers and football players and basketball players, and they did everything. They would wrestle in the middle oh of the living room. God. And, you know, it was just 
it was actually really crazy. Yeah, no. My and mom I didn't comes... realize that it was it was crazy at the time, but I it, I think it made me this very um solitary kind of person who I I liked my own company, thank God. And I would just go for the day in the summertime and I would go to the library and I would go to the museum. I could walk to these places and I I basically entertained myself because you know they were. My you're older, not gonna. You're not gonna start wrestling with your brothers. No, you know? I, I just. I wasn't a tomboy. Yeah. I really wasn't a tomboy, and my mother was too busy to. You know, eight so kids is crazy. Kinda, eight kids is crazy. But yes. I'll have to tell you that when you're growing up in a, a sort of a working class town, lots of Catholics. It was a moderate sized family. Yeah, my mom comes from a family of nine Catholic right. family. Well, and that 12, generation 14. didn't. They didn't use birth control. Mm-hmm. No, so eight was, you pretty, know, uh-huh. pretty. Pretty moderate. <laughs> but it was a crazy way to grow up. But it's so much material for my writing. Sure. Mm. So much material. And did it, does it give you some sort of different insight or deeper insight into uh, men? Yes, absolutely. I was never a flirt. I didn't... I, you, you know, I, I see them so much for... I see men so much for who they are. Mm-hmm. I, there's no idealism to men when yeah. I was a young woman growing up I wasn't like oh the boys because when you're growing up with them you see yeah, you've you seen know, it all you see them fart yeah. and you know <laughs> they're ugly and gross and they come out in their underwear and mm-hmm. the you know so D- I was never it, it, demystified it's the perfect way to put it I was I didn't grow up being a flirtatious little teenager girl I was just like but but on the other hand, I always feel more comfortable around guys. I, yeah, I would imagine so. And I, I'm exactly the opposite. Yeah, you know, I only had sisters, and I feel like women are my safety. I net. only had I had two sisters. That's it. And I feel more comfortable around. Like if I'm at a party and there's like five that's women funny. in the kitchen and five yeah. men in the living room, I'm You're probably I'm, I'm the in the same kitchen. Way. <laughs> same way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so occasionally, we had that connection. You but know, I, like that that was a just getting to know you kind of oh. You're a sole person in your family, and so yeah. am I. So where were you in the pecking order? I was third out of four. Third out of four, okay. Yeah. And so I had so a little yeah. sister. Both of you were like second to youngest. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm, I can't say I'm closer in any more – I'm in more contact with my middle sister, you know, the sister that's just older than me. And she was very much into sports. So there was a competitive aspect about – whether it was spoken or not, you know, if she did downhill racing, I was going to do it. You were you were an athlete. I was, yeah, and I loved sports. I still do. I watch more sports on TV than anything else. I don't care about politics. I don't give a shit about social crap. Sports you know? is sports is um, the best reality television. I love it. There's I love real tennis. Stakes. There's tennis real stakes in real time. There's yeah. a winner and a loser. There's drama. Yes, and sometimes, and like I think this is why you keep going back because I always try to argue this with people who, quote unquote, hate sports. Is that, um, you know, not super often, but if you watch enough of it, there are transcendent moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also, I think, the complete inverse of everything that I am. You know, like the cerebral, inward, writerly. Mm-hmm. Like these people are, they're all body, like no mind. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. not to say that they're dumb, but yeah. just like what they do is so right. physical. It's, it's just a physical pursuit. Yes. Um, I grew up, too, going to all, I went to all their wrestling matches and all their football games and so i was immersed in sports um as a young person and i did a few sports myself too but i was a cheerleader everyone i know who was a cheerleader does that they say i was a cheerleader and they cringe with sorry it's you know yeah what's the face all about i don't 
know exactly. I guess it's the, because of the perception of cheerleaders in general. I have a good perception of them. I liked I, cheerleaders I love, in high yeah. school and college. I think th- it was I think... fun. It was fun, you know. <laughs> yeah. You to go to all the things, so I enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's like what's one of those things? It's like a phase. Like I was in a fraternity for a semester, and then ew. I cringed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like ew. But yeah, but it's like I didn't know anybody. I didn't like. I just yeah. I wanted Animal House. I just wanted to have fun. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't give a shit about anything else. I just wanted like I, that's yeah. kind of what I like. That kind of you know formed at least part of my perception of what college was. <laughs> I hate to say. So I wanted to go have fun, and then yeah. right. you know a semester in, I was like, okay, like this isn't. That's and and, and we got kicked off of campus. So it's perfect. Oh. <laughs> the whole thing went to shit. But um, I think it's an. I think it's like of a similar ilk to uh, cheerleading, where yeah. you just like you admit it, like you know, quietly. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was a <laughs> On a, on a podcast that's going to be disseminated. <laughs> that's very quiet. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, Robert, like when you were growing up with all of these sisters, uh, you feel like you have uh, more insight into women than you than the average guy? Or? I feel I do have that, but I also feel like I was given um, complete, over 100% ability to just be who I am. Um, my mom, because she was into music as a young kid, you know, she turned us all into music. I was the only one that took piano for 18 years. My sisters took it for a while. We're like, eh. You were into it from the start? I loved it. Okay. And I was very close to my mom. I, she, was, she was the only parent really around. You know, my dad worked insane hours. And um, she was somebody I really admired. You know, I, I loved her wit. I loved her laugh. I still miss it. She's, she's, not a, she's no longer She passed this. in 2003. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, but, I, but there's something about her that made me feel proud to say she's my mom. You know, and I think she felt that as, with me, too. No matter what obstacles came into my life or, you know, whatever I had to deal with, she was right there, like, solid. You know, that's what I always say because I have really good parents and I, I try to um, sum it up to myself or sum it up to other people. And I try to, like, both as a way of trying to explain them, but also trying to um, articulate what I think it will take for me to be a good parent. Mm. And, like, just to make it simple, just be there. Yeah. Just yes. show up. That's it. Always be there. And you don't have to be perfect when you're there. Right. But you have to be there. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, we don't need more things. You know, we had a lot of things because we, my dad did well with his work, you know, but... I don't need another bike. I just want you to hold me. Tell yeah. me I'm okay. Ask right. me what I did in school. You know, like those kinds of things. And and I think the other thing is, um, like Kathy, I felt like I spent a lot of time on my own, you know, just because I'm not going to do the girly things necessarily. But I also felt like um, I l- always loved to read. That was that was my yeah. go away to activity, and you then, know. Okay, so you guys both as like the only um, – female and male respectively in your families gravitated towards solitude as a way of sort of removing yourself from yeah the other I, gender the chaos and the of chaos my house mm-hmm. yeah. and then but but you you kind of naturally found your way to books as an individual or was someone kind of prodding well you? i'll tell you in my case i was very lucky because um i lived maybe four blocks from you know when the carnegie libraries all were springing up all over the country. That's a nice legacy. Four, mm-hmm. Yeah, really, isn't it? Four blocks away, and, you know, in those days, your, you know, eight, seven-year-old daughter could walk four blocks to go to the library without. Mm-hmm. And so I did, and I would spend hours at the library. I would just, and just whatever I wanted to read about, and sometimes things probably I shouldn't have been reading about. But that's about, good, that's good. But it's great, yeah. right? And so I would just, you know, pull a book, you know, maybe you know, the occult, 
and sit in a corner and read about the occult, mm. you know, for an hour or whatever, or read about, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln's wife and, you know, get fascinated that way. So it was a great, I think it was a great way to grow up because I was, nobody was supervising me. Nobody was telling me what to read. Well, and that makes it fun. Yeah. You know, yeah. because the flip side is someone's telling you what to read and supervising you, and then you're not going to be a reader. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be oh, like, fuck this. Oh, I hate this, this yeah. so I have to read that. Yeah. Okay, thanks. There's and nothing I, worse than someone telling you what to read. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah, and I think in our case, too, like a lot of times um, books that you would equate to be girl books, like Laura Ingalls, Ingalls Wilder, for instance, like that would come to me just because my sisters would read and go, oh, you might. And I would start it, and I'd be like, this is not me. So what my mom would do is she'd ask her friends, do you guys have any info? Like, who'd be the male author that would be like something that my son would like that would be similar to this? And she'd find out Robinson Crusoe or Swiss Family Robinson or whatever. Right. And and I, too, have memories of going avidly to the library, a big black librarian, reading to these small kids, even at a young age. You know, like the staffing they had that turned us on to books, you know. My parents both loved to read, too, though. My dad loved to um, Kind of like westerns and historical. When he wasn't smoking and practicing medicine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the two hours he had at home, you know. Um, but he, he did like, both my parents like to read. So I think that also transferred to us too. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, you know, the, the apple doesn't fall far. I think you have to see, at least on some level, or it, it helps to see your parents reading something, even if it's the newspaper or just, yeah, that daily ritual, I think, really does um, make an impact. It certainly did for me. And I think even, I mean, like we're sitting here, the first thing I notice is those two piles of books. I'm scanning, looking at names, and t- oh, I read that. Oh, I, Hannah's book. Oh, I want to get that. You I know, have, like, I'm buried in books. Like this is, I've actually had to get rid of a lot just because I don't have space. <laughs> right, no. right, but, right. And they're coming at me like every day, and it's a weird feeling to be like, more fucking books. Like, they, yeah. like it's, it's almost uh, like a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Like Welcome to AWP. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's where I'm at with it now. Books are like, uh, you know, they're like gremlins. Yeah. Oh. Um, so okay. So then in childhood, like along with you know just like the the isolation <laughs> of being the only uh, you know uh, man and uh, woman in your in your uh, among your siblings, and then these trips to the to the library. Uh, anything else that you can point to that you feel like made you a writer, or is it just something you're born with? Like what? How do you conceive of that? I really don't know. I, I know that from a very young age, I just started writing stories. Um, I just enjoyed making up worlds. And, and I suppose if you're a reader, that you turn to writing naturally, too. Um, maybe also trying to make sense of things. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I had as quite as idyllic of childhood as you guys did. Um, so, as it sounds like you did anyway, but it was a little bit of a, a lot of tension. My parents fought rather uh, viciously with each other and being was it boozy or was it just like boozy yeah yeah definitely boozy um and my dad wonderful man but as soon as he drank he got ugly yeah and with us kids too and um so it was it was a lot of trying to make sense of what's going around uh when your parents don't have time to sit down and talk to you about it you know there was no like Mommy and Daddy had an argument, but we still love it. There was none of that. Yeah. So I think for my part, I spent a lot of time uh, in my writing anyway, trying to figure out what these memories that I have, what does it mean? What does that one moment that, that my parents shared, what does that mean? And how can I explore that in a fictional way that... Um, gets at the truth or it gets at the the attempt to get makes the truth. it make more sense yeah mm-hmm. yeah so i think that's 
I think a little bit of a, a sad childhood. Yeah, well, but you know, like, well, there's there's sadness in every life, and in mm-hmm. most childhoods, at least. There, I, I have a couple of friends who are like, like almost like incredibly untouched by anything. I know. <laughs> you know, those people. It's unlikely, like, but it's unlikely. Eventually, it's gonna. And, and you know what? Those people are gonna get theirs. That's yeah. life. It, it just hasn't happened yet. So. Yeah. Um, but it's common for writers to go through stuff when they're younger or to be to be at least close, you know, at close range. Yeah. Um, like your father's heart attack, I'm sure, sure, imprinted itself even though you were young. Like, mm-hmm. was there something else that happened? Yeah, there's a couple things for me. And I, I have stories, I think, that attempt to kind of infer or are somewhat about that. I was um, sexually molested when I was a young teenager, so 12, 13. And it was a stranger, wasn't family. But I didn't tell anyone for five years. Jesus. So what, what, what happened? Like you were. Um, it ha- I, we had a lot of property. These guys were camping out down on the property, and two of them took off. And there was one guy left, and I went back stupidly because we had. They offered us like beer and pot, and there was like five of us that went in the afternoon, and then none of my friends could return with me. And so, so oddly enough, I hopped on my bike, went back, and without getting into the details, because I've done you know. Years of therapy and tons of talking about this. Uh, I just felt I feel like that was pivotal. Sure. Like you can't go through something like that without feeling like a it was my fault. B right. the shame. At the same time, too, I was struggling with my own sexuality. So when I did arrive at the fact that probably I'm gay, which was traumatic after that, to be honest, um, it, it took me a while to reconcile that I have this desire toward men if a man could treat me so horribly, you know, how could I work that out really? Right. You know, and it took, it took a long time. I didn't really have my first serious relationship in, until I was in my thirties. I did. I dated. I lived out here actually in my twenties um, from about 26 to 31. Couldn't meet a soul. I mean, I just felt like LA was not like the place. And, and in a way I, maybe that was important for me. To just sort of be on my own, meet friends, make things work in my life in other See, ways. I always felt like uh, to be a gay and living in Los Angeles, meeting people would be so much easier because everybody sort of, like, you know where to go. Like, I always felt like, like where, are the, where are the girls? Where are the, the good girls? And there's millions of bars all over town. Mm-hmm. In Los Angeles, there's like West Hollywood. I know, right. I mean, obviously there can be gay people anywhere, but like, it does seem sort of concentrated. I feel like that would make it easier socially, but... It had the scene. The problem for me was that the stereotype was a little bit too true. Guys were really focused on, hey, you look hot. <laughs> and I wanted guys to be like, what do you have going on on the inside? Right. You know, that was the important thing for me from a young age. I'm more attracted to a person who has lots of inner life, and I want to dig and let, allow that to emerge when it does. But I love that about a person. I love that what makes us different matters, you know? Right. And I just of, want people to tell me that I'm hot. That's yeah, and a it. lot of guys. Yeah, and a lot of guys here were just like, "Hey, how are you in bed? You know, yeah. are you a top? Like, what the hell, man? There's so much more than that. You know, not that that's not good for a night. Yeah, if you want that. Yeah, but yeah, the scene appears to be vital and appears to have a lot going on, and then you go to those bars and you see the vacancy. You know, and you right. and you feel at the loss of you know, that emptiness. It's just diminishing returns. It's fun for a night or two, right. like, like once in a while, right. you know, but then you start doing it too much and it's like, oh my God. Yeah. Like what else is there? Yeah. It's the same for everybody. I think so too. And I think, you know, it was funny. I was asked to slide into a panel last year that I had no idea what the topic was, you know? So that's really fun. Hey, would you like to be on a panel? First of all, you prepare for a panel, right? Yeah. Okay, so stupidly. Oh, wait, you do? Yeah, all my friends are around going, do it, do it, Robert. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. So, 
this person sent me the info, you know, later that night at my hotel room. So it's topics like shame, regret, um, I mean, all of this stuff. And I'm like, oh, my God, the one thing that I'm going to have to bring up is referring back to what happened to me as a teenager, you know. And, of course, I've told, talked about this with friends, you know, people that like Kathy or other writers that I'm close to or obviously relationships. It's got to come up. Sure, you know, yeah. You've got to be able to go there. But I had never sat on a panel and talked to 120 strangers at a conference. This is me. This is what I write about. These are the themes that keep coming back to me and what, what I'm trying to resolve. It, it changed my life, literally. It, I, people were crying in the audience. That's amazing. The panel? Yeah, the panel was just like... How did it change your life? It made me feel like I probably have to write a memoir, which I hate, (laughs) because everybody is. Uh, It made me feel grateful that I'm a writer. You know, the the true simplicity of all of it is that it's a way I can express these things that a lot of people couldn't if they didn't have writing in their life. Did it lift any kind of, like, I know, like, it's it's you often hear this in the context of people coming out. Um, you know, that like suddenly like they'll drop 30 pounds or like they'll feel like there'll be some massive like physical change Emergence, in them, yeah. or there'll be like just this really palpable, like lifting of psychic burden. Mm-hmm. Was it that kind of thing or was it not quite as dramatic as that? I think it might've been like that. And you know, the interesting thing is somebody, a complete stranger came up to me at the very end of the program. As soon as we were all done, cause there was five panelists and I spoke second, I think. Um, and she looked at me without even hello. She said, can I give you a hug? That was the difference for me. Like somebody would walk up to me and go, I just want to be close to you. You know, oddly enough, this person's name was Chris with a K Vaughn, which oh. is my last name. Whoa. I've become friends with her. You know, we exchange cards. She's we... actually another one of your sisters. <laughs> right. Who knew? <laughs> would be so interesting. <laughs> but I have, I have these kind of things that happen in my life. I do. I'm really attuned to energy. I'm really built into being in the moment as much as I possibly can. You into crystals? Somewhat. I, I don't think I rely on those things as much as I just do me. What's your perception? What's happening right here? You know, yeah, and yeah. being available for when stuff shows up. I can't tell you how many times in my life someone has said, would you like to try? And I've said, nah, no. Until recently when I started to put books out. And a lot, two of the four books that I have out have happened because of AWP. Hmm. Yes, that is the truth. So me being uh-huh. here, someone hearing me read, someone, Michael Seidlinger, looked me up online read my stuff he approached me would you like to put a book out i just bought out my partner with ccm i pulled the car over i was like oh you know what i mean you don't have those kinds of experiences right but i showed up at a reading and gave it everything well but that's what they showing up is what 80 percent of uh yeah that's the that's the thing you just got to show up and meet people and it really is like all, all businesses or businesses are, are built on relationships. Yes. And I think for writers, especially maybe because we work in isolation most of the time, mm-hmm. uh, if you're trying to make inroads, it's especially important to show up for things like this as sure. tedious as it can sometimes be yeah. as much, uh, weird emotional stuff as it can dredge up mm-hmm. yeah. like feelings of, uh, inadequacy, feelings of being overwhelmed because you're an introvert and suddenly you're a wash in people feelings of, Oh my God, I got to make small talk at this party. Feelings of, oh my God, I'm feeling competitive and that's a gross feeling. Feelings of everybody's a writer. Yeah. <laughs> feelings, of, <laughs> feelings of how the fuck am I ever going to make it with yes. this many people trying to do this? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think that uh, that's instructive. And I think it kind of cuts against the impulses of most people who are in this game. You know, some, some people, some writers are very extroverted. 
I think so. They love to show up yeah, for parties. Yeah, that's uh, wonderful for those people. That's a lucky. That's a <laughs> yeah. That's a lucky thing. I think I love. Isn't it people? nice for them? I say through like a frozen smile. Yeah. <laughs> I think I love people. I you know I have that. I think I got that from my mom a little bit. But I don't. Yeah. But I have the same social anxieties. Like when we come to, into this thing, I threw up last night. Yeah. It didn't have anything to do really. I don't think with food or drugs or drinks it's or whatever. Me. I was so nervous about what I had to do today. Three different things, and this is one of them. You know? yeah. but, but just I get that a lot, by the way. People yeah. just vomiting. They throw up the, the night before. Just, no, and out of, up on your garage. No, just out in the driveway. Everyone pukes before they come in. <laughs> you should have a bucket. I do, actually, yeah. There's several buckets. <laughs> Roxanne took a... She had to do it. Use it. <laughs> they autograph the bucket when they leave. No, I think there's something um, about a big crowd inside a tight space. And even though the LACC seems gigantic, it's really not. When yeah. you have these aisles of people that are all in the same business as us, you can't help but feel small. I mean, you can't help but feel like, oh my God, what am I doing here? You know, and then you'll spot a friend who will come up with you and you see him once a year, if that, and then suddenly you just sort of feel like, oh, the other, thing, the other thing that's kind of nice is when you spot somebody that you only know online, yes. but you know them. Yes. And then you see them in person and it's like, oh, hey. And yeah. the, one of the most gratifying experiences and like reassuring because I can sometimes get a little bit jittery about quote unquote knowing people online. But the truth of the matter is that if I quote unquote know somebody virtually and then I meet them in person, uh, especially writer, I think, because they're often um, expressing themselves at length. Yeah. And with depth online, as opposed to just like, you know, cursory, right. you know, uh, comments or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's very rarely surprising. They often yeah. seem exactly like I thought they would. Right. That makes right. me feel good. I, I really, <laughs> I really it, enjoy that. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not, I'm definitely an introvert, but, and I'm not on Facebook, but I love Twitter. Love Twitter. Twitter is the social media for writers. It is. And I feel like you really, over time, get to know people, mm-hmm. you whether you're even interacting with them or not. You know, you know so many little details about people over the years. So we all know that Roxanne Gay loves elephants. Yeah. For, you know, for example. Yeah. Yes. And we know these things about each other. And it's, it's cool that mm-hmm. way. It's not in any kind of a well, showy way. It's just, this is who I am. And yeah. for writers who work in compression, I mean, Twitter's right up your alley. Exactly. That's your I game. I love it. Absolutely. I love it. It's I'm hard. on both. I'm, I'm a little bit more active on social stuff. So, I mean, that is the hard game with all of us because, you know, the marketing thing is really nauseating. You know, that everybody has to do it and you have to use the social sites for it and this and that. But how do you find that fine line with like, I'm an author yeah. and everybody else is, you know, and here's yeah. a new book. Yeah. Here's another one. Yeah. So I, I feel like... Um, and the other thing I think is just be nice. You know, show up at these conferences and be gentle and be nice with people, you know. It goes a long way. It does. And I think that's a value I also got from my mom. Not my dad, just like your dad. <laughs> just like he was too busy. Heard. He's too busy smoking. He doesn't yeah, have time to he, be nice. He was also, like, when he would drink, he was just like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He oh, was really? a jerk. Oh, my God. He was awful that's to my mom. That's and a weird us. thing as a kid to mm-hmm. process. Well, and just it's a weird thing as an adult to process. Yes. Because like, I have certain friends who, like, you know. It's like there's like Joe and then there's Mean Joe. Yes. Yeah. That's a. I mean, and I I, I feel bad. It's like yeah. oh, that's kind of a curse. It is. Like because I'm a, a I'm a very thing. happy drunk. Yeah. Like if I have a couple Me of drinks, too. I'm yeah. just like goofy and like yeah, smile. I'm, silly. I'm, I'm, I'm actually better. <laughs> Way better. I'm bitter and taciturn when I'm sober, but when I'm, I'm drunk. No, you're not, Brad. You're not coming across like that at all. Uh, but no, but I mean, you have these people who are in their sober life, very genial, warm. 
Yeah. Uh, and then they yep. like a switch flips once they've had a certain yes. number of drinks and all of a sudden yep. that light goes out behind their eyes and they just turn into an asshole. The look, it's the look. I would yep. I would know the moment I saw my dad's face that mm-hmm. he'd been drinking. What is that? I don't know. It's like it's an just, allergic it, reaction? It almost is. And yeah, I wonder if it is. On some level, it's almost an allergic reaction because, you know, other people can drink and not have that happen, you know, flip a switch. And you would think, though, that you would think like, oh, if that was happening, I'd probably be like, I'm going to stop doing this because. But But then there's that addiction. I think with my dad, too, that I and I don't know if this is the case for everybody, but I think there were so many things that he was unhappy about that he just did not deal with. My family split. Two of us are into therapy. My other two siblings absolutely disagree about it helping you at all you know Uh and i think that's the difference is like i can get out of something if i seek a solution you know and sometimes i need help to do that well most times i do (laughs) but you know but you also i think if you have writing i think writing i mean i know it can sound a little bit um trite but writing can have a therapeutic function for people yeah like you say you were trying to figure out what the hell happened yeah it can like that confusion unexamined with intensity can uh, wear a person down mm-hmm. right? and can right. have a, um, what is it, deleterious effect? Sure. You know what I'm sure saying? It can, it can really sap energy. And like mm-hmm. if you address it in writing or, and or in talk therapy. Uh, make art out of it. Yeah, you make yeah. art out of it, but yeah. it, it, it removes it from you in a way. Right. Mm-hmm. And it puts it at a certain um, distance. It allows you to understand it better, and then it doesn't own you as much anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, especially from the writing perspective, uh, it also gives you a language to, yes. to um, map it with. Yeah. And yes. people who resist or people who just mm-hmm. don't have the capacity or people who aren't interested in writing, right. uh, I think it makes it harder. Mm-hmm. They don't it even, must. Like, there's no vocabulary. It even. must. Exactly. You know, it, so, how, so you t- like, just to go back to your dad and like how he's got all these things that are upsetting him, but he might not even have... Oh, you know, I guess vocabulary is the right word, a way to express mm-hmm. any ventilation. And then you have a few drinks and it sort of seeps out. Mm-hmm. That makes some sense to me. Yeah. And I think also, you know, because of a profession like what he had, it's like there's so much um, at stake. You know, when you're literally like a family doctor to how many clients did he have? Who knows? Um, I don't think he knew how to balance that against let's go to the beach. You know, which was my mom's job. Let's just be, let's do something fun with kids. Let's do an art activity. Let's read a book together. You know, let's sing. Yeah. We, we were like the Von Trapp freaking family, you know, in the car. <laughs> um, but I don't know that my dad could ever like bridge that s- space to come over to the lighter side of life. You know, I feel like he, his burden was so, and probably inherited as well. Yeah. Um, he was in the war. He never talked about it. World oh. War II. The big one. Yeah. Um, I could never be in a war. I would move to Canada before I would be in I a war. I would be a very shitty soldier. I can tell you that. Yeah. And the other thing, just to get back to what you and Kathy were talking about too, like making art out of something is, you know, I, I, we've already talked about politics a little bit, like how I avoid it, especially the current temp- template. But, but I do use world events that are very destructive, things that have happened even recently. And I'll write about those. And what I oftentimes will do is try to make a poem out of it first. You know, I'll try to come at it like Emily Dickinson says, slant, I'll come in a different way. And then maybe I'll flush it into a story or a character or something. You know, I try to write these evil characters and I can't. I've tried a couple times. I've tried to write a poem from the mind of the guy that shot uh, Moscone and um, um, the guy in in San Francisco. Um, Harvey Milk? Yeah. 
I've tried to write Dan White, you know, and I've I literally in a workshop and Ellen Bass, who I revere, she is a, an incredible teacher, said, you know, this might be taking on too much for you, knowing you and your work. Maybe it's just not the right. Come on, write his story, write Milk's perspective, you know. Right. I don't know. It's just something that intrigues me. Like, how could someone do that? Like, or set that's off your a... politics. I mean, that's yeah. that's the way politics. Because I'm like, I'm way too on the other end of the spectrum. Like, reading about politics, mm-hmm. obsessed with it. Though I, I should say that I've hit a wall in this election cycle way earlier than I normally me do. Too. Yep. It's just too, it's, it's too stupid. Bizarre. It's too it's stupid. stupid. It's too bizarre. Yeah. It's yeah. too toxic. Yeah. Um, the GOP side, especially. <sighs> I mean. Primarily, let's be honest. I feel like there's a more civil debate happening between Hillary and Bernie. Yeah, it's not. Stu- it's, not it's not silly season. But it's no. yeah. It's a political debate. There yeah. should be. It should be heated. These are campaigns. Right. There's a right, lot at right. stake. Yeah. Right. It's a. You know, I have no problem with things getting a little bit testy. Yeah. Um, and personal even. Right. Like, right. You got to You got to toe that line. It's part of the process, and we need to hear those arguments. But what's happening uh, with Republicans in this cycle? feels insane it does and it, it does feels feel. really damaging and it's like it's oh. really hard to watch and right. i think it's hard to watch for a lot of republicans <laughs> i hope it's i i feel like it may be getting that way like it, it, maybe there's a, a tide that's turning now One oh, i hope. love your optimism yeah. <laughs> i think there is <laughs> i think but i think that's why optimistic. it's so fa- i think it's why it's so factionalized because if yeah. you look at the numbers like the trump numbers are um i guess they've grown a little bit but it's like 35 40 percent right of the primary electorate, mm-hmm. which right. is a sliver of the na- you know national right, right. like right leaning right. electorate, right. so you do the math and it's like okay, this is this is maybe seeming bigger than it is due to the incredible media coverage. And, and what is that? What is that about? Ratings, Why are they money. giving him so much money? He, He's people, charismatic. People watch. Uh, yeah. People watch, yeah. including me. I hate to say, like yeah. you know, because if I'm being honest, it's like oh, oh I'm. I'm weirdly a little fascinated with him. Well, you know, because I'm like, how? What is going on? How can you? I think you have to be in a way because this is a. I mean, it is a phenomenon of a certain political party and a certain kind of crazed base. (laughs) You know, and I think as a citizen, it's it's responsible to be uh, paying attention to a degree. But it just you know, you you get to a point where you're like, okay, I got it. Mm -hmm. Let's hope this guy goes away and gets, or or gets beaten badly. My hope is that this is, this is this moment in history Mm. and this is where we're going to go. Okay. So maybe 10 years from now, we're going to go, remember that election cycle. Remember what we went through with all that. Thank goodness. This you is know, the exorcism. This yeah, is the exorcism. That's my hope. Like the GOP is like, it's, it's head is spinning. And like, on yeah. like November 4th, it's going to be green pea soup. <laughs> the green pea Just soup is everywhere. Yeah. I, mean, I hope I'm not doing it from Toronto. You know, going, hey, down yeah. there, have fun. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a crazy time. And, you know, the other, the other, the other, possibility is that it just gets crazier and that's what really freaks me out and i don't like i you know people say like well maybe this is just what needs to happen in order for um the republican party to sort of resort itself and finally like break ties with its orthodoxy on so many issues right like many of which like climate change just seems silly to me right you have you have as many scientists saying that climate change is real as scientists saying that smoking is unhealthy yeah like exactly. at what at what point do you open your brain and go oh oh okay okay you know and so I'll let this in I, I don't mind there being differences of opinion on philosophy politically mm-hmm. but I get crazy when people start demand like making up their own facts and stuff like that right right you know and so hopefully you know maybe this is what breaks that orthodoxy but the other side of it is that 
you know, the fact that a guy like Trump is even where he is right. sort of legitimizes this behavior and has degraded the process maybe irrevocably. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. that can be freaky to think about, mm-hmm. right. you know, because people will be like, well, shit, this works and mm-hmm. people will tolerate it. And so right. the next time around, it won't seem as crazy. Yeah. I mean, know? the level of things that we're, we're tolerating now is bananas. Is bananas. But then I try to tell myself through history, we've, we've had other crazy things things. Yeah, Crazy Joe McCarthy yeah. from Wisconsin, yeah. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Andrew like, Jackson. Politics was really gritty. Yeah, yeah, we have. Yeah, but, yeah that's the thing. Like, hist- you know, you, you look back at history, like uh, Lyndon Johnson played dirty. I happen to believe that John F. Kennedy um, stole the election of 1960. I think his dad paid off the, the mob in Illinois to give, him, uh, to give him Illinois. I think I have that right. I wouldn't be surprised. It, yeah, seemed, it was a very, very narrow election. Yeah. And, uh, and his dad was crooked as can be. Yeah, the mob yeah. had a hand. I think I, I read a book by Seymour Hersh called like, The Dark Side of Camelot. And oh. uh, it was like, it, you know, it seemed convincing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. you know. Well, and that, and that gets to the point, too, of... Um, and I don't know how I, I feel about it, but the the leader who's not completely perfect, but has those skills or has whatever it takes. So do you overlook, you know, a shady family or a shady way of winning election because he was able to do so many other good things? Yeah. Well, that's but that's politics. Yeah. And that's especially that's politics. Yeah, and like like I think presidential politics, especially because that's where we really fetishize the individual and pay the most attention. I don't think yeah. people are really locked in on their like local state senator or their even their senator nationally right. in the way that they are on the president. And I think that, you know, I see this every, every cycle uh, where you have, I feel like within the two parties, uh, like there's like the idealistic purity faction uh, right. And then there's the more pragmatic centrist faction. And I think you need that tension. Mm-hmm. You need the idealists sure. to sort of set the vision for the future. You need them to call bullshit. You need them to be, um, you know, principled. So you're you're talking about Bernie Sanders versus Hillary. And yeah. then on the right side, you know, you might have like a more hardcore ideologue like Ted Cruz. Then you might have, you used to have a centrist. I don't know where they are, but it's like <laughs> Susan Collins of Maine. You yeah, know, it's like yeah. all this stuff. but. That's the problem, I think, right now, is that there isn't as much of a center-right. Right. Um, that's Maybe Kasich? Is that his name? Maybe he was more centrist than most. You at know, least like, in manner. One yeah. thinks. Manner. But he's also, like, on policy, yeah. he's, like, global closely, warming. He's, yeah. he's not, yeah. a, you know. Not so, but he, he comes across as, you he, know, he, better he expanded, he expanded Medicaid for poor people. <laughs> yeah. And, like, that was, like, a okay. huge, that was yeah. a huge breach for yeah. him. You know, that's, right. like, actually a problem for yeah. him in the primary. So it's one right, of the, right. he's only won one state. It's amazing to me the things that are a problem for these uh, GOP candidates, you know, that, you know, that I think, oh, they they were doing the right thing. Why is that a problem? And it's yeah. Romney care. It's the Mitt Romney. I mean, I could go on and on about politics. Uh, well, the <laughs> other end of that, too, though, like, even just a program like Medicare is how much do they ha- these guys have to raise just for their campaigns? I mean, yeah. th- it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The amount of money that could be used for good cause that, you know, millions and billions of dollars are going into, like, hi, I want to be your next president. That's just crazy. It's too much money. I and it's too long. And, like, but then again, I've, I've, I've flipped on this. I used to say that the campaign season was too long. But uh, Bill Maher was joking about this, but was also serious. He's like, actually, the American electorate is stupid. We need more time. 
Yeah. And like it kind of seems that Maybe. way. Maybe. Yeah. Especially like, now. I mean, a six-week compressed campaign, Donald Trump runs away with that nomination. He would have won if it, yeah. If like they been. actually need this like extended process to like be like, hey, people. Really He's nuts. Out. He doesn't know anything. You know? <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's got narcissistic personality disorder. Seriously, do, I, I, my feeling about him is I don't think he really knows what the job entails. No, he just wants power and he wants to be and on TV. I, he wants to be a CEO of the country, you yeah. know, like. And yeah. he thinks that's how he's going to get things done. I think it's going to be a big shock for him. Oh, heaven forbid if he's elected yeah. to like his first day and they're like. His, his ego and down. his temper would, I think, respond poorly to dangerously in the pressures of that job and in, and in the yeah. kinds of. Uh, and up against the kind of resistance that he would inevitably meet, he would not yeah, respond he, well. He doesn't anticipate meeting any resistance, and that's that's a real big problem yeah. because he will. Well, yeah. if he does get elected, we'll have plenty of you know plenty to write about. <laughs> there you go. Your, your next Thanks collection of yeah, your next collection of flash fiction right, will be right, Trump all right. Trump flash, all dystopian. <laughs> Hashtag Trump flash. Oh God! Uh, you guys, this has been really fun. Thank yeah. you for coming over. We've had a blast. Enjoy your time at the uh, AWP here Thank in Los you. Angeles. Enjoy the the good weather. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much. Yeah. Okay, guys. There you have it. Robert Vaughn, Kathy Fish. Their book is called Rift. It's a collection of flash fiction available now from Unknown Press. You can find Robert Vaughn online at robert-vaughn.com and his Twitter handle is at rgvaughn. Kathy Fish can be found at kathy-fish.com and her Twitter handle is at kathyfish. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. It's available wherever you, you, know, you go get your apps. Go to where you get your apps, get the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Sign up for premium. That's not free. But it's a great way to support the show. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. I was hit by a wave of fatigue about an hour ago. I don't know what happened. I've had six shots of espresso today. Went for a brisk walk this morning. Got hit by a wave of fatigue. The fatigue overtook me. I became lethargic. Due to the fatigue. Can you hear it in my voice? What is this song? <laughs> uh, do you guys understand, like, uh, Kill Rock Stars, at least they used to, they, po- they posted some uh, tracks on their website and said these are uh, you guys can use these on podcasts, which is uh, a nice thing for them to do. This is one of those tracks. I believe it's called Nose in the Corner. It just seems at odds with my current uh, temperament, with my lethargy. That's why I chose it. I wanted to provide counterpoint. Please remember that Schopenhauer's father jumped out of a window and that Herman Melville's dad died insane. That's all for now. Thank you for listening, you guys, and thanks especially to Robert Vaughn and Kathy Fish. Uh, Very nice to meet those guys in person. Very nice to have them here. I'll be back in about uh, seven days with another conversation with another writerly human being. 
and we'll do this again. It's going to happen again. I'm sorry. (laughs) 